You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And today is a very, very, very special day because it's our fir- the first time uh, that we've ever had a guest on the podcast. And it's not just any guest. It's a very special guest. Uh, my, my partner, Dr. Bill Gallo. Um, I'm sure I've, I've talked about uh, my, my firm, uh, Vital Statistics Consulting. Uh, we specialize in advanced data analytics, and I'll talk a lot more about that in just a second. But Bill, Dr. Bill Gallo is my, uh, my partner in crime. He's the co-founder and president of the firm. And more than that, he's basically family to me. Um, I met Bill when I was a doctoral student in, uh, in my doctor of, health pro- doctor of public health program at CUNY. He was my professor and he became my mentor. He'll be my lifelong mentor. He actually sat on my dissertation committee. And uh, obviously, needless to say, we've kept in touch over the years and um, our, our our paths led us to forming Vital Statistics Consulting together. So we'll talk more about that, but we're so honored and excited to have Bill on the podcast today. Very special day. And Andrea, did you want to remind everyone about something else that's sure. very important? Okay. Absolutely. So if you guys didn't tune in last week and you're catching up, um, We were nominated for the Data Hero Awards, um, Jess and myself, as part of the Provocateurs group. So um, these are individuals who contributed to the spread and transparency of data during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, So we are one of five finalists in the Provocateurs group. Um, You can still vote for us. They are factoring in public voting and part of their decision-making for the winner. Um, Voting is open until March 29th. So go to dataheroawards.org forward slash vote to read all the profiles. There are five categories. We're we're in one of them. Um, Read all the profiles of the finalists. And of course, um, you know, pick your vote for the pod if you want to support us. So, okay, so today we're doing things a little different um, rather than talk about um, science. I mean, I, this is definitely still science focused, but we're not going to uh, to talk about a particular topic. Rather, we're going to talk about our careers in STEM, um, our paths, what led us here, um, you know, what are some of the careers that we maybe considered along the way. And we'll talk about our respective degrees because Andrea and I, we often talk about, you know, I have a a DRPH, a doctorate in public health. Andrea has a PhD in immunology and microbiology. And so obviously, although we, we both fall under the STEM umbrella, these are very different fields. Um, and Bill is also, he brings a very unique perspective because he was in academia for, for many years. So I think that this will be a very well-rounded, comprehensive conversation. So Andrea, can maybe you could kick things off. Can you tell us, how did you know that you wanted to be in science? Can you tell us a little bit about how you, you came to be where you are today? 
Yeah, I can definitely do that, Jess. And and I think that, you know, even though this is not a science heavy episode, I think it's very important because we get a lot of questions from listeners, from visitors to our social media pages, wondering about what is the appropriate degree? How did I, how do you get into the field? What should you consider when you're, you know, constructing your course catalogs and things like that. And so, you know, I think the first thing to understand is that STEM is a very broad catch-all for a lot of different careers in in science, engineering, math, um, you know, et cetera. And so, you know, you can have doctoral degrees, you can have, you know, master's degrees. There's all sorts of different degrees and certifications and things like that. And so, you know, really a career in science is, is, you know, someone that's passionate and has a natural curiosity, um, you know, about the world. And obviously there are a lot of different types of science. And so, you know, for me, my, my path was probably a little bit more stereotypical or a little bit more obvious than, than some people. Um, I was always a science nerd from when I was a little kid, um, always interested in, you know, critters, bugs, animals, um, you know, anything that had a shock value too, I was really into. Um, so when I was a little kid, my older brother and, and me, so my, my older brother is, is, um, he's passed away now, but when we were little kids, we used to go into the woods and collect bugs together and we would catalog them and identify them. And, you know, so we would, we would start our like early years in this, you know, very basic entomology. Um, and, and that evolved over the years. Um, we were very interested in animals, um, ecology and zoology, and it was really just anything that allowed us to explore in a curious manner. And, um, you know, as I got a little bit older, that interest started to shift towards, the more microbiology. So I became fascinated with cat parasites. I I had cats my entire, I still have cats, but I had cats my entire life. We had all sorts of pets, including cats and dogs and, and axolotls and guinea pigs and gerbils. Um, but I was very fascinated about things like ticks and the life cycle of a tapeworm and hookworms and leeches and and I was very fortunate to be in um, a special schooling program, at least back then, where we were able to do these creative research projects. And so I would, you know, do these little Q&A research presentations to the class. And, you know, the topic was lice. And I was giving everybody all this information about the symptoms of a life, lice infestation and how do you treat them and how do you cure them. And um, so it was pretty clear, um, you know, probably from kindergarten even, that that was the route that I was moving toward. And when I got a little bit older, I've probably mentioned this on the pod before, but my mom was doing her teacher certification at Eastern Connecticut State University. And as such, she had access to the library at the school. And I took out the Physician's Guide to Arthropods of Medical Importance, which is a medical textbook. Um, I was probably about 10 years old. And I would walk around reading passages, you know, different chapters to people about parasites in Africa that would eat your flesh while you're sleeping or, you know, some new disease vector like the tsetse fly or the mosquito and all the different diseases they would spread. And 
you know, and thankfully my family was very encouraging of this. They were not trying to to stem that, you know, somewhat bizarre preoccupation with um, diseases and creepy crawlies. But when I got into high school, I was really able to expand that. And I was really fortunate to have a high school biology teacher, my honors biology teacher in 10th grade. His name's Mark Ambruso. And he's actually a, a principal at a school in a nearby district where I grew up. Um, but he was very encouraging about my interests. Um, I took a microbiology class with him in 11th grade, so I had him for a second year in a row. And that microbiology class was really what got me hooked and really directed me to very specifically infectious disease immunology. Um, and then my senior year, uh, 12th grade in high school, I did an independent study with him. And my high school did not have access to a lot of the lab resources. We're not near a university that had a lot of lab equipment. So these kind of uh, high school internships that a lot of people do these days, it wasn't accessible. So I ended up doing, instead of lab, like wet research, wet bench research about infectious diseases, I ended up doing actually an epidemiological study. So I looked at... Um, the cost-benefit analysis of a national vaccination mandate for bacterial meningitis in college students specifically. So bacterial meningitis can be a very fatal and debilitating illness. It's very prevalent amongst college students because of the close quarters and, you know, compromised immune system. And I was really interested in, you know, whether or not having this national mandate as opposed to state by state or university by university um, made more sense from, you know, a healthcare perspective and also a reducing disease perspective. And from there, you know, I went to Stony Brook. I specifically only applied to three undergraduate schools for college. Um, so it was Johns Hopkins, Washington University in St. Louis and Stony Brook, um, all of which had very, very excellent biomedical sciences programs. I really knew what I was going in for. I wrote my college application essay about microbiology and immunology and that I was going to get a PhD in it and study infectious diseases. Um, so in undergrad, I worked in four different labs. Um, I actually ended up working in a plant biology lab very briefly, which was a really fun experience. But the other three labs were infectious disease labs, really honing my lab skills, trying to figure out, you know, did I really want to go the PhD route? Um, I briefly considered an MD PhD, but I decided I really wanted to focus specifically on research. I didn't really want to do any clinician type work. Of course, kind of followed that through, you know, took the GREs, took the biology GREs, you know, and then ultimately sought out PhD programs specifically that were dealing with infectious disease immunology. Um, and I, I can pause there, I guess, if we want to talk about kind of early backgrounds before we do more of the career development stuff, Jess. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Can you guys tell that we're just kind of winging this episode because this is <laughs> one that... I don't know. I mean, it's it's more personal, right? It's about our personal journeys. So I think this yeah. is this is awesome. But wow! So you, it's almost like you had a crystal ball. You you kind of <laughs> knew <laughs> what you wanted to do pretty early on. Yeah, um, I mean, I was I was a big nerd. I mean, I was fascinated with animals too. I know you had considered veterinary school. I had also that thought had crossed my mind. Um, but but I think the thing that fascinated me the most about animals was the diseases that they would get mm -hmm. and could, in theory, pass to other people. So we've obviously been talking a lot about zoonotic diseases because SARS-CoV-2 is a zoonotic disease, which is one that 
is passed from animals to humans. And, um, you know, the vast majority of illnesses are, in fact, those types of diseases. Well, very cool. Um, my my path was a lot. If, if I'm if I'm charting it, it was a lot more of a squiggly line. <laughs> um, I, I I have written down on a piece of paper just to to you know prompt myself. I wrote veterinarian to MD to lawyer to bench researcher to public health scientist, just to give you guys a sense of what my my path has been like. But but yes, as you said, Andrea, when I was uh, a, a little girl, I you know I've I've always loved animals. Uh, um, my mother loved animals. We lived in this little apartment in South Brooklyn, and we had dozens of animals, birds, guinea pigs, hamsters, dogs, cats, I mean, everything, you name it. We were breeding pigeons on our balcony. We had a little snail farm. So for many years, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, but then as I got older, I struggled with the idea of seeing sick animals and, you know, potentially, obviously, putting down animals that, that couldn't be treated. And so that became very difficult for me. I'm a very uh, empathetic person, and I was worried that that would really uh, become problematic for, for my psyche and my emotional well-being, despite the fact that obviously you're helping the animals. So shout out to any veterinarians out there. I think you're amazing. I always gravitated to to math and science, honestly, math in particular, and I credit my my late father uh, for for instilling that in me. He was actually a, a gambler, so it started out we were playing cards, and you know, I don't know, it just all kind of fed into this mathematical way of of thinking and pattern recognition. I just I loved it so much, so I always knew I always excelled in my math and science courses, and when when I was in high school, he he didn't even graduate from, from high school, actually. He got very involved in my college admissions process, and he urged me to apply to, um, well, we loved Stony Brook University. Again, same reason as you, Andrea, you know, real emphasis on on science, and I knew that that was something I was passionate about. Um, so he encouraged me to, to apply to the WISE program, Women in Science and Engineering. Uh, and, and like you, I also applied to other schools. But once I found out that I got into this specific program at Stony Brook, that, that sealed the deal. Um, so I'm not even going to try to pretend that I was head down in my books during college. I did quite a bit of partying. Um, I wasn't sure uh, for most of my college career what I wanted to end up doing. I took lots of different coursework, you know, advanced calculus courses, which I love, statistics, statistics courses. I ended up gravitating for whatever reason toward health sciences. And within health science, I, I gravitated toward uh, public health and health policy. And at this point, I, I kind of, I, I thought, you know, do I want to be a doctor? I wasn't sure, but I ended up spending a summer studying for the MCAT, ended up being a wasted summer because I decided <laughs> in the end not to take my MCAT. Um, I never took it. I, I kind of, I came to the realization that there's something about science and healthcare that I love, but it, it's not the clinical side of things. Even though I really love, um, I, I think I, I would have really enjoyed that patient-physician relationship. Uh, I'm a very squeamish person, don't do well with you know, vomit and blood and poop and all that good stuff. So I ended up um, really focusing more on public health coursework. And 
for a time there, I wasn't sure. Again, I, it was things were up in the air, and there there was a spot available. Uh, there was a nearby lab, Brookhaven National Laboratory, and there was a spot for a bench researcher, a, a research assistant, unpaid, of course, as so many opportunities are <laughs> when when you're in undergrad. And I did bench research for a few years. It was a, a neuropharmacology lab. Uh, yes, we we worked um, with mice and rats, which was challenging for me as as a person who loves animals. Um, but you know, in the name of of science and medicine, I uh, saw past that. But I I just I wasn't really enjoying the bench science. Again, props to you, Andrea, and obviously you know doing different types of bench research. And I'm certainly not comparing what I did as a research assistant to what you do as a PhD immunologist and microbiologist. But it just it didn't click for me. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. To kind of move things along, I decided, you know, let me explore. People have been talking about an MPH, a Master of Public Health. And when I spoke to some college advisors, they were saying that it's a really versatile degree. And and that is so true. And we could talk more about that. But you could go into heavy-duty analytics, you know, data analytics and biostatistics or epidemiology. Or you could go more into, you know, community health or environmental health or emergency preparedness. You can work in um, in academia. You could work in public health practice for local departments of health or government agencies. There were so many different things you could do with it. So I went ahead and I, I got my MPH and I loved it. I can't cannot say enough about the Stony Brook MPH program. Shout out. Um, <laughs> just incredible. Specifically, I had a professor, Dr. Lauren Hale, um, with whom I'm still in touch. She's awesome. Um, she told me, you know, you got to keep this going. You love this. Maybe you should take this one step further and pursue either a, you know, a doctorate or just something else. For a while, because I loved health policy so much, I thought, should I go into law? So I actually studied for the LSAT, took the LSAT, applied to law school, got into law school, and then decided that it wasn't the, the, the legal, the law side of things that really attracted me. It was, I, I was really obsessed with this idea of health policy, but more than that, the evaluation of policy and understanding what makes them effective. You know, how do we actually move the needle? How do we actually improve population health? So I'll talk more. I know, Andrea, we're kind of pausing and we'll talk more about what we're doing now. But that was my very tumultuous <laughs> roller coaster ride um, to figuring out what it is that I wanted to do. I love, so that. I love that story, Jess. <laughs> but I think I think it's really important because it underscores the fact that these career tracks don't necessarily follow a straight line. And even if they do, once you get to that terminal degree, you know, I haven't even really talked about that, but after the PhD, there are so many different directions you can take it in. And I think people often are apprehensive about jumping into a career 
in STEM because they're afraid if, you know, they get derailed or if they decide they don't like it, that they're going to be pigeonholed. And I think it's really important to understand that regardless of where where you go and what field you're interested in and what topics you're interested in, there's really a diverse array of different options for you. True. So, Bill... I'm going to ask Bill a question. So I, I have to start with a really funny, um, I don't know if it's an anecdote or whatever, but um, so as I said, Bill was my professor, my mentor, sat on my dissertation committee. Um, and so for years, I called him Dr. Gallo. <laughs> and I, even after we started talking about potentially forming an entrepreneurial venture, which obviously that's the path that we ended up taking, I struggled calling him Bill. But now he's Bill, um, still feels funny. Uh, he's super modest. So I'll just go ahead and say that he's an absolutely brilliant data scientist and methodologist and health economist. But Bill, I'd love to know, can you share with us, uh, did you uh, did you know that you wanted to be a health economist? What did your path look like? Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> I should first thank you both for having me. I'm, I'm the uh, first guest of the podcast. Is that correct? Absolutely. We're super excited yes. to have you, Bill. Yes. Thank you, Andrea. And, but I should, I should also share an anecdote, um, which is that the way I came to have a special relationship with, with Jessica was um, was because my having her in class coincided with my need for reading glasses. Do you remember this, Jessica? You do. <laughs> I'm blushing right now. <laughs> and, before, <laughs> and I think before I had reading glasses, uh, I, I, I needed someone to sign on to the computer for me. So you two are still a few years uh, away from this, but I needed someone to sign on to the, to the classroom uh, computer so that I could uh, pull up my PowerPoints and deliver the lecture and everything. And so what did I ask Jessica? I said, is anybody under 30 here? And my, my perky... Uh, current partner jumped up and said, "I'll do it." Oh God! Oh jeez! <laughs> and so each week, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the enthusiasm never waned. It, oh, it, it continues to this day, and and my I, I have an incredible partner in you. You're you're brilliant, and you're dedicated, and you persevere and you're you're indefatigable you're you're incredible so i'm the one who's blessed in this relationship i don't agree but i will take it thank you and can we just all and andrea i think we should take a moment to thank bill because as i said you know vsc vital statistics that's that's my full-time gig right that's mm -hmm. that's our company and this the unbiased science podcast started as a passion project and Thank you to Bill for for letting me run with this, and we you know we formed the podcast. It's actually not to get too technical, but it's a wholly owned subsidiary of BSC, and it's something that you know obviously does take me away right. from my full time gig. And and Bill, you know, you've been so understanding and and supportive of our of our passion project here. So thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you've done such a great job, both of you, with this. And, and I admire you so much for what you've been able to build in such a short time. So tell us, tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a brilliant data scientist, health economist, methodologist. Well, I, I was a pretty average kid. And, and I think you, you both probably know I'm, I'm inclined to live in the moment. 
So I wasn't making preparations for a career when I, I was a young person. And neither one of my, my parents uh, graduated from college. My mom didn't even graduate from high school. And, and my father got um, one year of college in um, before he was, he was called home to take over a family business, um, which was a tavern during the Great Depression. So I didn't have educated parents um, and I didn't know a whole lot. And I, I didn't come from a place where, where uh, people generally attended college. So I didn't know a whole lot about uh, possibilities beyond sort of local work and industry. And, and then there were, of course, you know, there, there were people who, who were attorneys and accountants and um, a few who worked in, in New York. I grew up very close to New York, just a, you know, a, more or less a, a stone's throw away. In fact, so close that we could read, we could tell the time by reading the clocks in, in Manhattan when I was out playing in, in the park. So, um, you know, so, so it was, it was um, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't emerge from an environment where it, there uh, were, you know, models for a career in science, especially. So, um, so my path was very nonlinear as well. And, and um, you know, it, uh, I, I tried quite a number of things before, before I, I uh, ultimately earned a terminal degree. My degree is a little bit different from yours, Jessica, and, and more like Andrea's. I have a PhD in a social science in, in economics, and um, it's a little bit different in that it's, um, despite the fact that economists do a lot of applied work, a lot of applied data analysis, uh, we're not generally trained that well. Our our programs, uh, the PhD programs in economics are, are um, theoretical, and there's there's an empirical part, but it's it's not emphasized. Um, so in a lot of programs, the, the program that I attended, I actually had to teach myself the applied part of, of economics. So I had to learn, teach myself to code and to do applied statistics and so on, which is why I I don't have a terrible amount of sympathy for students who uh, who complain <laughs> about about uh, the challenges learning, uh, let's say, applied data science. Um, so not only did I have to teach myself, but I had to do it in, in the period before learning materials were, were widely available on, on the internet. But that, yeah, I guess that that sort of takes me um, to, you know, to the next part of my career and how I got to, to our company, to, to VSC. Um, and feel free to jump in anytime and, and ask questions. But um, as, as Andrea said, once, um, once one earns a, a doctoral degree, there, there are lots of options. And my hope was always to, to teach because um, I enjoy students and I enjoy teaching and, and sort of transmitting naturally what, what, um, what I learn. I, I sort of feel an obligation to do that, to, to take what I learn and, and to give it to others and ask them to kind of pass it on. And when I graduated, there were probably 250 or 300 applicants for every one position in, um, in an economics program. And so as, um, as I was uh, sort of finishing up my program, I prepared myself for alternatives by taking additional coursework. Um, so I did a bunch of coursework in epidemiology and public health science and biostatistics, which is a specialized type of statistical analysis that's used in, in public health, of a little bit different from, from the type of analysis we use in economics, which is called econometrics. And, um, and I also did um, some additional coursework and a fellowship in an area called gerontology, which is an umbrella under which um, th there are a number of disciplines and that, that, that work together to understand um, problems related to aging. 
um, the process of aging and the aged and so on. So I, I was pretty multidisciplinary by the time I, I graduated and, um, and I had some options that, that um, many of my classmates didn't. So at that time, many of them, they went into industry because there were so few academic jobs, but I started in, some, in uh, full-time research. And I know, Jessica, you wanted to talk a little bit about that and, and perhaps um, bring up yeah. the idea, yeah, sure, of what, what professors who don't teach do. Yes. So we'll, you'll have to fill me in. So I, I, when I, I, I had a faculty appointment, right. Um, and I was teaching coursework. I was also research coordinator of, of Hofstra's uh, physician assistant studies program. I was salaried. There was no push. Uh, the, the emphasis was more on the didactic teaching. Um, there was no, there were no research requirements, publishing requirements, but I understand that that's very different. And I think maybe you can um, really represent the, you know, academia and just talk a little bit about what that's like. What is it, what does it mean to rely on soft money? Can you tell us a little bit about that side of things? I sure can. Okay. Well, so it, it, it sort of begs the question, how does someone who wants to teach for a living um, land a job that doesn't require any teaching? And, and so, um, the reason why I would entertain such such an option was really because um, I had uh, the possibility of working with some some people who are, are really giants in, in the in the field of clinical medicine, geriatric medicine, public health, um, epidemiology. And so when I graduated, I was offered um, what's called a postdoctoral fellowship, which is um, it's it's basically a couple of years, usually a year or two of what we call protected time, meaning there's there, there are no um, responsibilities um, that that uh, uh, w with regard to teaching or committee membership or anything like that. So it's really just protected time. It's full time to pursue research. And, and what many people in um, in my case would do is to is to sort of expand um, the, the research that was um, conducted in, in the doctoral dissertation, which is what I did. And I, I kind of not only expanded it, but I extended it to to fit better with my mentor's um, research. And so I did that for a couple of years and was interested at that point in, in um, joining perhaps an economics faculty or a gerontology faculty, but but was uncertain about whether uh, whether I, I really wanted to do that. And around the same time, I started to apply for grants. So now my postdoctoral fellowship was funded by a grant from the National Institute on Mental Health, um, which is one of the institutes of, of the National Institutes of Health. And, and so uh, I thought, well, you know, perhaps I can extend what I'm doing now. Um, there's a whole series of studies that I'd like to do. If I took a teaching job, it might take me 10 years. And if, I, if I'm able to secure a grant, it might take me two years to pursue that research, to conduct the studies and, and write up the papers and publish them. So I applied for a grant and I, I was awarded the grant and, um, and that was for two years. And around the same time, I was awarded a couple of other um, grants, uh, awards. They were uh, career development grants and, um, and some pilot funding that was related to an institute that I was attached to at, at um, Yale University, which is where I spent the first 10 years of my career. And so that kind of set me on a path. I really... It, it propelled me in a way that didn't allow me to stop and say, do I really want to do this? 
so that's that's kind of how I got into that. And, and that kind of leads me to answer your question about soft money. What's soft money? Well, um, an institution will have almost, it'll have a faculty of what, what are sort of like free agents. Um, they, they operate uh, within, within the institution. So in my case, it was the Yale School of Medicine, but they pay their own way. So they apply for um, grants and sometimes um, contracts, um, and, and, and those are typically funded by philanthropic organizations, uh, research institutes, um, and in our case, it was mostly the National Institutes of Health. And that money flows through to the investigator, a person like me, and then I'd pay myself, my staff, and I would pay the university um, to house me there, essentially. So I, would, I, I traded um, what I was able to bring in from the NIH for a faculty position, and, um, and I paid for essentially everything, everything from a, a, a photocopy to an employee who worked under me. And so that's, that's very different from what we call hard money in academia, which is where an institution, a university will hire you and your salary comes directly from, from the institution. So not, not a third party, not an outside source. So Andrew, didn't you, thank you for sharing that, Bill, and for such a clear uh, explanation of, of hard versus soft money and about your path. We have many more questions for you, so don't go anywhere. Um, but oh, Andrea, did, <laughs> didn't you, Andrea, also consider academia? Yeah, so, you know, when I was in my last year of my PhD program and I'm writing and I'm publishing and, you know, getting ready to defend and things like that, at that point in time, you know, I was I was looking for that next step, right? And so you typically want to be thinking about that in the last year or so of your of your given program. And once upon a time, I had envisioned myself, um, you know, staying in academia uh, or possibly ending up in government. So um, you know, something like the CDC or the NIH, actually working at those institutes. And so I was applying for infectious disease immunology. Well, infectious disease immunology, immunology, cancer immunology, these types of fields, um, postdoctoral programs. And as Bill said, you know, it's additional training. It's often somewhat relevant to what you did for your doctoral research, but the goal is to expand your skill set, to expand your research breadth, to um, obviously publish more because that's the currency in academia. You know, we all know the adage publisher perish. And um, I was I was doing that whole process. I was interviewing and actively applying for academic postdocs um, all over the New York City metro area, which is where I did my Ph.D., I was looking at things like autoimmunity labs, more infectious disease immunology labs, some cancer immunology labs. And I had several offers from labs at Mount Sinai, labs at Rutgers, um, and a couple of other places, at which point I sat down for a minute. And, and, and I think, Bill, you said it so nicely that, you know, you're on this path and you don't really have, have time to think about if it's the right move or not. And I, I did it. I did that. I sat down one day and I was like, do, do I want to, do I want to do this? Like, is this a necessary step in what I want to do for my career? Is this postdoc really required? And the reason I did that was I was getting my PhD around the time that funding was really challenging. Uh, there was almost no money for new investigators. The grant funding and the competition for granting was extremely competitive. Um, and young investigators who don't have a lot of body of data to use as, you know, 
supportive information for these grant proposals were getting, you know, basically outcompeted by more established researchers. And one of the postdocs in my lab, he was on his third postdoc. And so he was doing these serial postdocs, two-year stints, moving around at each juncture. And it it was just so unstable and it doesn't give you really job security. Um, and I And I thought to myself, I said, you know, I don't know if I want to be a professor because at least in in my field, most places that you were going to be a professor at, you needed to do research. And as the professor, as the principal investigator, you wouldn't be the one conducting the research, right? You would be applying for grants and looking for money and writing and things like that. And I wanted to stay close to the science. And, and that was really a very pivotal moment for me. And that's really where I started to look for what, what else can I do with this skill set, with my science, with my interest in teaching, with my interest in conveying science, with my interest in pursuing science, but not be in an academic lab. And, and that's really where I moved into the biotech industry, you know, biotech and biopharma. Um, they actually do, um, they do have postdocs. I didn't do a postdoc, but they're available now. Um, they're really expanding the training of scientists in industry. And, um, and, you know, so I, I made that jump. It, it was, it was challenging because, the resume and CV and approach you use to apply and make that transition into industry is very different than what you would do to get a job in academia. But I did some workshops. I sought out external resources. I, I took this really great series with the New York Academy of Sciences about alternative PhD careers. And I've actually kind of given back in that capacity and have served on these seminars to talk to you know, soon to be PhDs about these options. Um, but once I made the jump, you know, I, I just, I, I really never looked back. And I always think about, you know, what it might be like to move back into academia, but at least right now, the, the urge hasn't struck me yet. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. That is so interesting. Wow, we we have a really diverse... <laughs> history across, you know, um, all three of our stories. So one thing that I wanted to chime in uh, uh, to chime in about is the distinction between a PhD and a DRPH, because I do get that question a lot. Um, and Bill, you touched on this when, when you were you were saying that PhD training tends to be more theoretical. And I always knew I gravitated much. More, this is why academia never really spoke to me. That that wasn't my thing. I'm, I'm much more about applied, you know, public health practice. 
and so for me, at least that this is how it was explained to me when I was trying to figure out, do I want to do a PhD or DRPH is just that. So PhD, more theoretical, DRPH, more, more applied public health practice in, in the DRPH program, pretty much everyone, I think every, actually, Bill, you, you might remember, I think you can confirm this. Everyone had at least part-time employment. We were all working in the field of public health. That was a requirement. I hope I'm not butchering that. I think that's correct. I think that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and and so that that really appealed to me. Um. So that that helped me make the decision between PhD versus DRPH because I too I applied to PhD programs. I got into PhD programs. And another thing to point out is that often you'll get a stipend to to join a PhD program, right? Um. Whereas a DRPH program you pay for you pay for credits very similar to undergrad or a master's program so i want to yeah. quickly chime in because yeah i think you know your interpretation of a phd in public health may in fact be true when you talk about it being more theoretical than applied but if you're talking mm -hmm. about biomedical sciences you know there's not it's a phd right and that's applied science you know we're in the lab doing experiments mm -hmm. um so oh, i yeah, think it's no. really important to make a distinction mm -hmm. that a PhD is is not the same across all different fields, even within the sciences. Absolutely. No, I'm I am talking very specifically about a PhD in public health or health services research, something along those lines versus a DRPH. That is how it's broken. At least that's how it was always explained to me, Bill. I don't know if you've had similar conversations with students is that a PhD in public health is more theoretical, whereas a PhD, uh, DRPH tends to be more applied public health practice. Um, true. And Andrea, you know, it's it's interesting. You you probably know this. In pu public health really relies on theories that were developed in other sciences and in, in, in the behavioral and social sciences. So it doesn't really have a theory of its own. Right. Um, so the um, so, so uh, public health is really an applied science, even if one earns a, a PhD as opposed to a DRPH. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the program is really applied. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not a great distinction, I think. Um, I think Jessica, you went you went in the right direction, if I if I could say so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's um, hard. It's hard to articulate what the difference is, right? Well, um, yeah. Yeah, and one of the challenges of of um, operating a PhD program in an applied area is not um, watering down the theories that that are borrowed from from other uh, disciplines, and it's it's virtually impossible because they have to be adapted to health science essentially, and so um, I'm not always certain that that there's great value in doing that, and and so I I think the the DRPH degree is is um, is probably the you know the one that I would prefer. Well, I like to hear that. Um, I love <laughs> my <laughs> love my degree, um, and <laughs> you know when just thinking a little bit about career paths, like you, Andrea. I think you you said you thought maybe you'd end up in government. With my passion for health policy, that was my my dream, right? I, yeah. I started out working for our local departments of health, really in their health policy evaluation um, departments. And really just within that, just to, as a side note, my passion was always uh, tobacco policy specifically, mainly inspired by my father's struggle with, uh, with emphysema and COPD. So I, I really, I always grew 
gravitated toward policy, government. My dream was maybe CDC or FDA Mm -hmm. or something like that. I ended up taking a position as a um, health policy consultant at a a very large firm outside of D.C., doing some really, really incredible work, uh, mainly state and federal health policy evaluations. But you know, Andrew, you said something really funny, not funny, something that resonated, which was that, you know, maybe you were referring to soft money that, you know, there really wasn't stability. I think that's what you're referring to. Sorry if I'm yeah, no, that. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you know, you were just kind of chasing grant money, right? And there right. was not, not a, a hierarchy for developing your career it was kind of just jumping from position one after the other and, and hoping you can find income for the next couple of years. Right. So I I never soft money that I never worked in that realm. But my point was that I, you know, I had this position as a consultant at this large firm, uh, very stable job, respectable position, good salary. um, And there was stability in it. You know, that was one of the selling points. But what I didn't have in that role was a whole lot of autonomy and a lot of, um, you know, create. I wasn't able to really flex my creative public health brain or muscle. I don't know what you'd call it. And so I think that was really the impetus behind sort of, I don't know, risking it all, right, Bill? That's what we did to to form this small business. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but it is certainly not for the faint of heart. It's been so incredibly rewarding and thrilling and, and really incredible to to be my own boss, you know, and then to 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 be able to take this in, in in a direction that I feel passionately about, but there there's no safety net, right? There's no stability, and so while it's not, I don't know, Bill, it's not soft money, but we, everything we do is, you know, is mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to finish the sentence, but you know, I know you know where I'm going with this. Where yeah fighting for our lives, right? Fighting for survival. And so in a way, there's almost that same, you know, that same sense of risk and of um, vulnerability and lack of stability, right? Mm-hmm. I would, <laughs> yes, I would agree. Well, you know, I, what, what I haven't shared with the listeners is that I spent 10 years on soft money, but then I spent nine and a half in a traditional public health school where I was supported by, um, by the institution. So that's what we call hard money. So my, my, uh, salary was was paid by um, students' tuition and fees and, and other revenue generated by the university, not a third party, um, like an, like the NIH, for example. And so um, the incentives were very different. As Andrea's pointed out, you really have, you know, in a soft money position, you really have to be um, on on top of the grant cycle. So if you if you're fortunate enough to get let's say a two year or a five year grant, I had one of each of those. You um, you have to be thinking about about um, applying for uh, grants to pay your salary when when those expire. You know pretty early on. So in a two year grant, um, the grant cycle at that time was was two years. So by the time I got the money, I had to be thinking about applying for the next grant, um, and I hadn't even published the research. I hadn't even begun to conduct the research. Later on, I got better at this process, and so the research was conducted very quickly, or it was in process when the grant, when the uh, the funding came through, and then I had a higher likelihood of of getting funding um, to to extend that or or additional funding. So it's a very very difficult way um, to make a living, but it it was great preparation for what we currently do, 
And I think the big difference between that career as a soft money investigator and our, my career now with you as an entrepreneur is um, at that time, I had a great institution behind me. I had a, a world-class institution, a name, 40 libraries. I mean, you know, when 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 we were to to write up, you know, the institutional attributes uh, for, <laughs> for a grant, you know, who wouldn't be impressed by them? Um, you and I now have built something from scratch and, and we, you know, we, we aren't a big name yet. And so, uh, you know, we don't have a large institution behind us. There's no safety net yet. Exactly. Well, absolutely. There's, there's, there, there's no stopping us, clearly. So um, that's the difference. Yes, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's a high wire act. It's every day. Um, it's, um, it's exhausting, but it's, it's also thrilling. And, um, and, and as you said, you didn't have a whole lot of decision latitude and autonomy at, at your, your previous job. Well, now you have as much as you can handle um, with with me and with our employees and and the various things that we do. And that comes with its own challenges, right? <laughs> that comes with its own challenges, right? But but what I, I think what I love most about what we do is I learn so much every day. It's it's so dynamic. Um, you know, we're forced to learn in any given day. Uh, probably more than I would have learned in a semester or or a year or maybe even two years. Um, you know, because we have to, we've got, um, you know, opportunities that require us just to be flexible and uh, stop on a dime and make, you know, make a decision at some sort of note and move in, into another uh, area. And let's face it, healthcare is very, very complex. You know, the various uh, parts of it that, that, that overlap and intersperse are themselves complex and disease states are complex and institutions are and, and um, you know, the intersection of government and, and providers and patients and employers and payers is, uh, you know, un, it's just unmatched. It's unparalleled anywhere else in any other industry. So um, it really requires us to learn a whole lot every day. Um, and that's how we make our money. And I find it very interesting. You mentioned the the publishing challenge, the, the challenges in trying to find grant money when you haven't published your data from the previous grant round, and that and that's a challenge certainly in academic research. Um, but in some in some degree, it's also a challenge in biotech and biopharma, um, especially with smaller companies, companies that are funded by angel investors or are going through series funding, you know, and, and, and I find it interesting, you guys mention, you know, the, the lack of name recognition, you know, because my company, my full-time job is, is also from a relatively small company, but we get, we, we have the privilege of working with some of the big players, um, for collaborative and co-publishing and things like that, which has been very gratifying. Um, but I think it really, it, it underscores the fact that there are these stresses and these challenges really regardless of what route you take in STEM, whether you stay in a traditional academic route. And I and I may argue that academia is no longer the traditional route anymore, that many people are actually leaving academia after their terminal degree and moving into different sectors, private sectors, industry, entrepreneurial work, consulting work. Um, I think there's a really broad diversity of different career options in any science field, ultimately. 
So I think that's the that's the big takeaway, right? I mean, look, we're we're all in STEM, right? Under this umbrella of STEM, but look at how different our paths have been. Our degrees are all different. The work we've done is is so different. You know, if you guys have any questions, we're always open. We're always an open book, open books, right, <laughs> Andrea? Mm-hmm. Um, we'd encourage you all to you know to reach out for right, reach out to us if you have an interest in you know Andrea's um, if Andrea the path that Andrea's taken and her road to being a PhD immunologist and microbiologist, um, working in biotech and doing consulting and and obviously now the podcast or, or <laughs> I think or, we all wear too many hats. Yeah, I was say which which. How many titles can I can I touch on here? Um, and you know, mine. Obviously, I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but super passionate about public health and health policy evaluation and applied data analytics. You know, I don't even know my my rocky path from thinking I'd be a veterinarian to a physician to a lawyer to a bench researcher to here I am in public health and also a small business owner. And and Bill, my goodness, your path. I think very. I don't know, unconventional, but as you said, Andrea, who knows what's conventional or unconventional <laughs> these days yeah. um, to being a PhD health economist and, you know, relying on soft money and being a scientist for so many years and in academia and now to being a small business owner and entrepreneur. So, and, and Bill, thank you so much for your perspective and your honesty and your time and um, I am quite sure we'll be inviting you back on future episodes. So we hope you'll join us. <laughs> if you'll have me, if you'll have me. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, honest, I was just going to say really quickly, I'll pass it back over to you, Bill. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, I think really it's, it's an open book. You know, I work these days with, you know, data architects and systems architects and automation engineers some days more often than I work with other biologists because labs are automating things and there are robots involved and there's coding involved and um, there's a lot of crosstalk between all of these different STEM industries. And, and I think, you know, as long as you have this mental flexibility and this you know, ability to think critically and look at a problem and try and investigate solutions, there's certainly an opportunity in STEM for you. I agree. And I, I just wanted to thank you both um, for having me as a guest. And um, I really appreciated it. And um, if you want me back, you know my rate. <laughs> I don't think we can afford you, Bill. Uh, <laughs> I could even prepare next time at a higher rate, premium, oh, premium rate for you too. Oh my goodness! Oh, thank you so much for joining us, Bill. It was thank really a pleasure, Doctor Gallo, forever and always. Oh, thank you, thank God. you. Yeah. On that well, note, Andrea, do you want to take us home? All righty. Thank you all for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And, uh, you know, at least maybe you got a little bit of a perspective on the different options, different paths, different circuitous roads that you might take toward a career in STEM. Um, And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, the Data Hero Awards are still open until March 29th. 
So if you want to support the pod that way, check out dataheroawards.org forward slash vote and vote for us in the Provocateurs cohort. Next week, we are going to talk a little bit about the history of epidemiology, how it started, where it's going, what it really encompasses. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 vaccine and pandemic progress on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. We've also updated our email address. So check out the website at www.unbiasedscipod where you can leave us a herd from the herd question, drop us or donation, or pick up some Unbiased Science merch. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.